so Lindsay is a um, sweet friend of ours. Uh, we've known her kind of forever. My wife knew her and, and went to the same school, grew up at the same school with her in high school, and then we all went to college together. Uh, Lindsay and I, we knew each other actually from a campus ministry called Crew. We were both in leadership in that ministry, and um, Lindsay had a couple different places in her life where she was really significant. She actually took my wife for her first time to go to the Crew, the weekly gathering on campus when we were in college, and that was like, you know, Jenny showed up at this this room, this giant auditorium with like a thousand screaming, cheering college students passionate about Jesus, and that was a huge step of faith for my wife, and it really, yeah, made a huge difference, got her involved in ministry, and it was life-changing for her, so Lindsay was part of that. The other thing is that after that event, um, she invited my wife to the house party at my house in college, and that's where we met for the first time, so Lindsay had a part of that too. Um, We like Lindsay a lot. And so uh, later that year, Lindsay and I got to know each other a little bit better. I don't know really how it started, but we started having um, prank wars. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, I would do something to her, and she would do something to me, and I don't know. We just, it started small, and I, no one really remembers who started it. It's one of those, like, Hatfield and McCoys. Who started this? But I do remember how it ended. It was, um, it was the weekly meeting of our big crew weekly meeting for um, all the college students would come in and have this big worship service and all this. And at the time, I was the MC of it. So a couple hours beforehand, I had my routine. I would go home. I would get dressed. I would get in the right frame of mind and I would, so I could prepare for the meeting that night. And I go home. I open up my closet to get dressed. And it's empty. <laughs> I mean, completely empty. Every shirt, every sweater, every sock, everything is gone. And I'm like, what in the world? And then I'm like, Lindsay! <laughs> so I show up that night. The band shows up on the stage, and I'm like, well, they all look really good tonight. What? What? They're all wearing my clothes. <laughs> the first song ends, I jump up on stage, I grab the mic, I'm ready to talk, and I'm like, wait a second. I've seen that shirt before, and that coat, and that hat, and those socks. What? <laughs> like, she's dispersed my clothes to everyone in the audience. Yes, that is Lindsay. So after college, she, uh, she just a, a beautiful heart for the Lord. And she went on staff with crew. She kind of lived here and there and all over the world, just serving the Lord, um, bringing college students to Christ, an awesome ministry. And um, later on, we knew, though, that she really wanted to get married, start a family. And so a couple years ago, really super excited. God provided her just this awesome guy similar heart for the Lord. She got married, and we were like, this is awesome. We're so glad for you. And, and then the next step is the best news ever, right? She's pregnant. Baby's on the way. Everything's going to plan. She's got the ministry. She's got the awesome Christian guy. And now the best news ever, she's pregnant. And then that's when it happened. They, uh, they get the news that their baby has a extremely rare uh, birth defect. And that the baby... Um, if, if it makes it full term, we'll only be able to live a few hours after the birth. And so they, they cry and they grieve and then they, they make the courageous decision to carry the baby full term and we're just going to pray for a miracle. And so they go through all that and a couple years ago, baby Sophie was born. She lived just a couple hours. 
And that wasn't part of their plan. And so they did what anyone would do. They grieved. But there's a silver lining on this because this is a rare birth defect and there was no reason to believe that this should have happened to them. It was just like a fluke. It was a one in a million type thing. And so they were like, it's okay. There's no reason to believe we can't have a big healthy family just like anyone else. And so last year, earlier this year, they, uh, they got pregnant again. And they went to the doctor and found out that their baby this time had a different, equally rare birth defect. That the baby, if it went full term, would only live a few hours and then would die. And two weeks ago, baby Dasha was born, lived for 12 hours, and then they buried her. In normal life, we can pretend like God's not in control, like things just happen because they happen. But when you have something like this, where it's like a one and a billion chance of this happening to the same couple twice. It's just, it, it, it destroys that illusion. You know, God did this. Like, there's no denying it. This was God's plan. Like, no one can control that except God. Like, only God could make that happen. And so the terrible, terrible question is asked, why? In what universe does it make sense? Because it doesn't make sense in ours. It's frustrating it's debilitating, it's defeating. And we ask, what is God doing? What's God thinking? And for the love of all that is true and good, and for the love of my friend, why? Most of us, thankfully, can't, can't relate exactly to what my friend went through. We haven't experienced that kind of loss. But I think all of us can relate to that exact same question, that somewhere along the way, God's plan and our plan diverges, and we're left asking why. Like, why am I still single? Or why don't my kids follow the Lord? Or why am I stuck in this dead-end job? Or why did God take this person? Or why won't God heal me? Why is this my struggle forever and ever and ever? Why won't God take this sin out of my life? Why did God give me a marriage that's broken? As a pastor, I hear these questions a lot. And it wears on me. And it's not because it's not good questions. These are great questions. It's because I don't know. I don't know why God won't heal you. I don't know why God took that person. I, I don't know. I don't know. And today, I want to be clear, I do not want to try and answer those questions. I think that's impossible. I don't want to try and solve the problem. Um, today, I just want to give us a story. A story about a guy who had a lot more questions than answers, who gave up on life, who wanted to die, who his plan and God's plan went totally different directions, and he did what all of us do. He asked why. In some ways, I think this story is really terrible. Like, you read it and you're just like, ah! Oh. But in other ways, if you've experienced that before, I hope that it's encouraging for us. Let's go to the Bible. 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. Now up to this point in the story of Elijah, Elijah has been nothing but awesome. So hopefully this will work. We've got a few pictures here to remind us of where we've been. 
God first, where does he do? He sends Elijah to Kareth to this terrible place of isolation and pain, and he's cut off from everything. And what does Elijah do? He's a rock. He says, yes, I will follow you there into that terrible place. And then God sends him into the heart of enemy territory and says, a widow is going to provide for you. A guy named Elijah, my God is Yahweh, is going to the heart of Baal territory where he's certainly going to have a big target on his chest. Like, you're going to die there. It's a stupid thing to tell him to do. But Elijah says, yes. And then God says, now I'm going to take you here to the mountaintop. And I want you to face off 450 prophets of Baal. And Elijah does. I mean, when we, when we get to this point in the story, like, we, we are the champions. is blaring over the loudspeakers. Right? This is the classic mountaintop experience. After three and a half years that have been terrible. For everyone, but particularly for Elijah. After three and a half terrible years, he's vindicated. Like everyone's seen it. There's no denying it. Like, do you remember the scene? The, the, the god of money, Baal, he's, he's proved, he just proved that he's helpless, he's powerless. That God's people are set free. You don't have to serve this terrible god anymore. You're free. All the people are chanting, the Lord is God, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. The prophets of Baal, what are they? He mocks them. He embarrasses them and then he slaughters them. Woo! Like this is where you're like doing chest bumps and running around and he's taking his victory lap. Like you can hardly imagine a more glorious, like this is what I live for moment. Like this is the stuff of life. And the scene ends with King Ahab. And Elijah both racing 17 miles back to Jezreel from Mount Carmel all the way over here, all the way down to Jezreel, through the Jezreel Valley. 17 miles. And this old man is so pumped up, so running on adrenaline at this point, he actually outruns the chariot. Like, this is awesome. Now, if you're one of those history buffs, the name Jezreel actually rings a bell to you. You know about Jezreel because Jezreel down here in the south there is a famous, famous military fortification. Fortification. It's it's one of those. It's the sentinel of Israel. So you see, on the two sides here, we've got these two different valleys coming from the north: Jezreel Valley, and then this valley over here. Jezreel right here stood as this military fortress. Any armies coming in to take over Israel, to take over Samaria, and then later Jerusalem, they had to go through Jezreel. Jezreel was the place where everyone stopped. And, and speaking of which, they've been doing these excavations these last few years. And uh, you can actually, if you have a secret Indiana Jones inside you, you can actually sign up to be part of this next year. Huh? Huh? Some of you should check it out. It's awesome. So you can go there today and be part of this excavation. What they found is that during the Omride era, which is this time period we're talking about right now, when King Omri, Ahab's father, reigned, that at that level of excavation, it was a massive military fortress. It probably looked something like this. It, this isn't it, but it looked something like this. The moat around it was 118 feet wide and 20 feet deep. This is actually in England. But you get the idea. So here they are. They both race as hard as they can to get there. Now here's the question that we should all be asking. After we just saw what happened at Mount Carmel, that great victory... The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Why are they now running to a military fortress? Hmm? 
Now, what might not be immediately evident to us 2,900 years after the event is that Elijah's actions were not just religious in nature. They were political. That for there to be a king whose God is proven to be false, a God who has no power, who can't provide, who can't protect, this is going to throw his entire reign into question. Like, this is not just a religious coup. This is a political coup. Like, Ahab has to run back there. You know why? Because he's afraid all the people who just killed the prophets of Baal are now going to turn on him and chop his head off. And Elijah, we don't really know what's going through his head, but it's safe to say that he's not sprinting all the way there because he thinks things are going to go poorly. Like, they're, they're backed into a corner. They're going to either have to repent and worship Yahweh, the one true God, or they're going to have to flee. Everyone just saw it. Fire from heaven. The Lord, he is God. His enemies are vanquished. Now verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. He just told them everything. Fire from heaven. The chanting. The slaughter. Like what are we going to do? Baal, he can't protect us. What are we going to do? Are we going to repent or are we going to run? And she says... So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. She says to Elijah, This changes nothing. The people are weak. I'm not done yet. And Elijah was afraid. And ran for his life. This was originally written in Hebrew. Hebrew is one of those really elastic languages. I love it for that reason. Because like one word could be translated ten different ways legitimately. And it all depends on the context. It's an artist's language. A poet's language. And I, I love it because it's, 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 so many words mean the same. Could mean two and three things at the same time intentionally. It's brilliant. It drives most people crazy. So in this phrase... What you're going to find is that this one phrase, he was afraid and ran for his life, it's, it's probably safe to say that Elijah was afraid. And we do know that he runs, he flees down south out of the kingdom. But it's important to note that, that here, this text doesn't literally say this. In fact, in Hebrew, the part he was afraid actually says this. Literally, he saw, and then that part, and ran for his life says, and went into his soul, or went into himself. This, this is something very different. In fact, if you go through this, this, this phrase, he saw, like, should we translate that as he was afraid? Well, it's possible, but if you read the rest of the context of this story, do you see anywhere where Elijah is actually afraid? No. Like, he's had lots of reasons up to this point to be afraid, and we don't see any fear in him. So why would he suddenly be afraid of this? I mean, it could be. But that would be a big turn. So to translate that as a fear doesn't quite read right. And then he ran for his life. That word translated ran there is halak. It is like one of the most common Hebrew words ever. It's, it's, it occurs somewhere around 1,400 times in the Old Testament. And let me tell you something. This is the only place in the entire Old Testament where it refers to a person running, if it means that. 
So is there reason from this context to think that he saw and went into his soul actually means he was afraid and ran for his life? Well, it's possible translation. But what if it means something different? What would that mean? Do you remember the scene in Braveheart? And all the men over 30 are like, yes, I do. I don't know which one you're talking about, but I remember it. The Battle of Falkirk. Huh? That great army. Um, so what is it? These this little Scottish rebels against the overwhelming evil English forces. And, and it looks like the Scots are going to lose. But William Wallace, he has something up his sleeve. So they come face to face, smashing in battle, and, and it's the time fires roaring around them, and they're hacking off appendages and blood splattering the screen. It's terrible and awesome all at the same time. And then what does William Wallace do? All you men remember, he, he waves, he, he waves to the Scottish nobles and says, ride, ride, You're, now's the time to go flank the English, and that's what's going to crush them, and then we're going to win. But when he waves, what happens? They don't move. They sit and look at him, and he realizes something. Something's wrong here. And he looks around, and he sees his men getting slaughtered. So he gets frantic. He grabs a horse, rides for the English king, thinks, I'm going to take him out. If I take out the king, this will stop the battle. But on the way, a knight comes and stops him. Of course, he's getting, you know, he's William Wallace. So he's getting ready to kill the knight. He yanks off his helmet, and who is it? It's Robert de Bruce. Like this is the one Scottish nobleman that he actually trusted. This is the one man who swore allegiance to him. And Gibson gets this look on his face. Well, he saw what was going on. He saw that he was betrayed. He saw that he had no hope. That before this battle ever started, there was no winning. It didn't matter what he had planned. And he lays down. He's just ready to die. May I suggest to you, may I and Walter Brugeman and a few other excellent Hebrew scholars suggest to you that that's what's going on right here. It's not that Elijah is terrified. It's that he gets this message from Jezebel and he saw. Suddenly he saw what's really going on. He saw that Mount Carmel, it meant nothing. That, that he saw that the return of rain meant that everyone would now be busy once again going after their money. That everyone would just forget about God because they have too much work to do. He saw that evil was going to win again. And he saw that he had suffered and believed and walked by faith for years. And nothing was going to come of it. He saw that his life was pointless. And at that point, right there, he saw that his plans and God's plans looked different. And he wasn't okay with it. And so what does he do? He turns inward. He goes into his soul. Watch this. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. He doesn't need him anymore because he's quitting his job. I don't need anyone while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he's quit. He came to a broom bush or tree and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. This might sound familiar to some of you. 
Some of you have prayed this prayer. God, I give up. Like I I tried, I tried, and I tried, and I tried, and I give up. I got nothing left. Just let me die. And he lays down to sleep, and he never wants to wake up again. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. For the journey is too much for you. See, Elijah's physically tired to be sure, but there's something more here. The journey's too much. He doesn't have a reason to get up anymore. The motivation... The joy, the reason, it's gone. He isn't just tired of running. He is tired of living. And this is what we would probably call depression. It begins when Elijah has this raw emotional blow. He's reeling. And then he runs away. He isolates himself from everyone else. And then he stops taking care of himself until he is completely overwhelmed and despairs of life itself. And a lot of us know exactly what this feels like. According to the CDC, one out of ten of us right now in this room struggle or have struggled with clinical depression. Let me tell you how this is defined. More than half the days, you have to check one of the top two. I have little interest or pleasure in doing things. Or I, have, I feel down, depressed, or hopeless. And then if you check one of those two and then just one of the next five, there's a good chance you have some form of clinical depression. Trouble falling asleep or staying awake or sleeping too much. Feel tired or have little energy. Have a poor appetite or overeat. Feel bad about myself or feel like a failure or feel like I've let people down. Have trouble concentrating on things. Find myself moving or speaking so slowly that other people could have noticed Or just the opposite, being fidgety all the time. If you can check one of these two and four more, you win the prize of having what they call major depression. If you're here right now, and that's where you're at, I just want to say a couple things. One, you're not alone. You're not alone. A lot of people know what you're going through and have been there. And if you've never been there, one, praise God, then let me tell you, there's a good chance it's coming. Second thing I want to say is that please, please, please don't follow Elijah's example and go run off and isolate yourself so that you can die by yourself under a tree. That's what people do. In fact, there's probably people in our congregation who aren't here right now because that's what they're doing. You need people. You need support. You need help. Third, and very practically from the text, I want you to notice the first thing that God does for Elijah. He lets him sleep, and then he gives him a meal. Uh, So back in seminary, I had a professor named Dr. Bramer, and he said in his classes, often I had a few of his classes, 
He said, students would come to him, and I, I don't know if you guys know, seminary life is kind of funny. I mean, it's similar to a lot of graduate school stuff, I guess, and that you, you're a full-time student. Most of the people have to work full-time. Most of them have young kids, their families, and then in seminary, most of them serve in a ministry as well. So really, you're, you're scheduled 80 plus hours a week, and in order to try and keep all those balls in the air, stuff like eating and sleeping become optional. Exercise is a pure luxury. So what you'd find is that students would come to him after one or two years of this, and they would come to him and say, I'm not made for ministry. I'm, I'm dropping out of seminary. I don't even know if I believe this stuff anymore. I am certainly not supposed to be a pastor. I am the least spiritual person ever. You know, his first piece of advice for every single student who came to him and threatened to drop out of seminary, his first piece of advice was this. It was a question. When's the last time you slept eight hours? What's your diet like? Do you exercise? And after they'd answer that, he would say, here's what I want you to do. Three things. I want you to go home, and no matter what, for the next three nights, I want you to sleep eight hours. I want you to eat healthy food, and I want you to exercise. And in three days after you've accomplished that, come back and then let's talk. And he said in his quote that I think is pure, pure genius is this. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is get a good night's sleep. I'm not saying this is a magical cure for depression. Please don't hear that. But I am saying that some of you are having this massive emotional, spiritual trauma in your life and you think that you've lost your faith or you think that your marriage is broken or you think life is too hard when the reality is you need a good night's sleep. That you're living a schedule that is ridiculous and you're killing yourselves. Go back and listen to my sermon on Sabbath. Verse 8. So he got up and ate and drank, strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, or Sinai, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. Here's the traditional site, Mount Sinai. Where does Elijah run? He runs to Horeb, which is also called Sinai. So back in 2002, Jenny and I got married, and I took her on the nicest honeymoon I could afford, Canada. And we went to Canmore, Alberta. And to most of you, it's a little nothing place. Oh, but to us, it is a special place. It's a magical place. It's a place where we started our lives together, where, where we experienced things together, where, where we, our relationship and our commitment, the first taste of real marital love right there, Canmore, Alberta. It's a magical place. So imagine Jenny and I, Pure fiction here, but imagine we get into a knockdown drag out fight. I mean like frighten the kids, sleep on the couch type fight. And I'm feeling really bad, so I come home the next day with flowers and two tickets to Canmore, Alberta. I said, baby, let's go to Canmore. Now to you, that might just sound like silliness. But to my wife, that's not just a place, it's the place. So where does Elijah go when everything falls apart? He goes back to the beginning. This is not just a place. This is the place. This is the Ten Commandments. This is where God showed up and said, let's do this together. I'll be your God. You be my people. This is where he swore on himself 
I will never fail you. I will never leave you. Here's, my, here's how, what it looks like to do life with me. This is where he swore. I'll be your God. I'll never leave you. This is the place where God made a covenant with Israel. Where he showed up to a whole people unlike any other time in history before or since. And when everything falls apart, Elijah says, let's go back there. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Notice, God doesn't ask questions because he doesn't know the answer. Elijah replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. You know what he's saying at this place? He's saying it's a failure. Like your covenant, your whole idea of trying to be the God of one particular people, it's a failure. Like everything you tried, there's no people left to know you. Like that whole idea of we'll follow your laws and we'll love you more and more and grow and spend eternity with you. That's a failure. Your promises are a failure. Nobody wants to know you. Nobody cares. I'm the only one left. And I'm not even sure if I care anymore. That's what Elijah is saying. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now this next section here, there are no words to adequately describe what's going on here. I want you to see that the main description we're going to see in this is what the Lord is not in and what he's not doing Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, Hey, Elijah, what are you doing there? He's not sweeping through like a mighty wind. He's not shaking the foundations of the earth. He's not coming in judgment with fire. But there, in a gentle whisper, in a still, small voice, King James, quiet, gentle, mild, unexpected, God shows up. And that's it. Elijah, I know you're depressed. I know you can't see what I'm doing or why I'm doing it. I know that you feel isolated and meaningless. But I showed up. I'm here. And the next thing, Elijah vomits up at his same complaint. It's a failure, Lord. Everything's ruined. Everything's gone. This whole idea of having a relationship with you, of people ever wanting to follow you, it's a failure, Lord. And the Lord says, go back. Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. And there, when you get there, anoint Hazael, king of Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel, Meholah, to succeed you as a prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Judgment is coming. I've got a plan. 
I haven't dropped the ball. And yet I've reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not yet kissed him. It's not a failure. I've got people, people that I love, people that I pursue, and I'm going to keep showing people grace. Again, and again, and again. And it's not going to fail because it's not dependent on their commitment to me. It's dependent on my commitment to them. So Elijah went. And that's it. Elijah's life collapses. He does everything wrong. He stops taking care of himself. He isolates himself. He believes the worst about everyone, everything, including God. But there's one right thing that he does, and the one thing that I want you to see in this story, it's this, is that when everything in his life collapses, where does he run? He doesn't run away from God. He runs to God, and he vomits everything up at him. He runs to Horeb, to the place where everything with God began, and he gives all of it to God, all of his doubts, all of his frustration, all of his despair. And when he does, he doesn't get a lesson. He doesn't get three steps to a depression-free life. He doesn't get any easy answers. He gets God. God who says, I'm faithful and I'm with you, even if you'll never, ever understand it. God assures him that all is not lost. He shows up quiet and gentle and mild and unexpected. And that's it. Now, in the end, Elijah might never really understand God's plan. We might never really understand God's plan. But we can know this, that God is with us, that he's for us, that he loves us. Like we can't understand anything else. But that's what God promises. The, uh, the week after Lindsay found out the diagnosis on her second baby, she wrote a blog post that's called It Is Not Fair. And it's, uh, it's powerful. And she wrote that sometimes I wonder, God, how could you allow this? How could you be so unfair? And then she says at those times, she drops everything and she runs. And you know where she runs? Not to Mount Horeb, but she runs to the cross. She runs to the cross because there she knows that she knows that she knows that God loves me so much that he sent Jesus to die for me. She runs to the cross because there she knows that she knows that she knows that God's plan is not to hurt her, but to save her. She runs to the cross because there she knows that God loves her babies more than she does. She runs to the cross because there she knows that God conquers in unexpected ways, in weakness, in suffering, in death, and then finally in resurrection. She runs to the cross because there she can give God all of her doubts and frustration and despair, and there she doesn't get a lesson. She doesn't get three easy steps to solve this. There's no easy answers at the cross. But there she finds God, gentle, mild, unexpected, and then resurrected. And she knows that she knows that she knows that even if she doesn't have answers, all is not lost. I think that's a pretty good answer. She finishes it with this. 
surely doesn't answer the questions of why God allows what he does, but it moves my heart to be unable to shake his love for me, for us right now. He's the only one that offers hope and redemption in the suffering and one day freedom from the suffering. So really, Jesus is the only one that makes a whole lot of sense to me right now. To which I say, Amen and Amen. Let's pray. Father, I, I don't know where people are at today. God, but I pray for those who are currently suffering with depression or struggling with these issues, Lord, that your plan and their plan have completely diverged and they're asking why. God, I pray that they would find comfort in the cross of Jesus Christ. I pray that they would find hope. God, I pray that your presence would be clear to them, palpable to them. That even if they don't know why you do what you do, they know that you're with them. That you're not leaving us. That you're for us and not against us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.